Let's give our attention now to the reading and the hearing of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, beginning in Luke chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him and he said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and he would pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and he picked up what he had been lying on. He went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it today. We understand what we've heard read physically, or we heard the words, we understood them, but we need you to grant to us more than physical understanding. Oh God, grant us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, even rebuke us for righteousness sake. Oh God, I pray that you would work in the hearts and minds of your children here. Make them more like Jesus. And Father, help me, your servant. Protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are my rock and my redeemer. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A young college professor was eager to meet his new class on the first day of the semester. He stood up before them somewhat nervously, as you might expect for a young professor, and he tried to break the ice. He gave a nice introduction about himself, and he talked about all of his qualifications, right? Why he's the one who's the teacher. Upon completion of his probably too lengthy monologue, he looked around the room and he asked his students this question. 
Do you think that you are stupid? Yeah, they kind of laughed like that. Mm, okay, this is weird. He went on and he said, if any of you do think that you are stupid, I want you to stand up right now. He looked around and as you can imagine, no one stood up. So he proceeded to ask the question again, this time looking into the eyes of as many who would return his gaze. If you think you're stupid, stand up. It was at this moment, as awkward as it was, that a young man sitting in the back corner decided to stand up. Foster kind of shook his head. He looked at him back there and he said, so you think you're stupid, young man? No, the student replied, I don't. I just didn't want you to feel so alone standing there all by yourself. <laughs> when defining compassion, dictionaries will mostly focus on feelings. For example, Merriam-Webster says that compassion is the quote, sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Word soup, right? Uh, similarly, the New Oxford American Dictionary says that compassion is, and I'll quote again, a sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortunes of others. Don't get me wrong, feelings, desires are certainly a part of compassion, right? They are a part of it. Definitions like the ones I just read for you I believe they fall short of a complete picture. They lack what is quite literally at the root of the word compassion itself. What do I mean? These definitions lack the presence of action. They miss the mark that was clearly seen even in the actions of the student I just jokingly described. You see, true compassion, true biblical compassion includes more than recognizing and feeling pity for others' suffering. True compassion means entering into the suffering of others and acting on their behalf, entering into their suffering and then acting on their behalf. I think author Frederick Buchner actually got this right when he offered this definition, alternate definition of compassion. This is what he says, quote, compassion is sometimes the fatal capacity for feeling what it is like to live inside somebody else's skin. He goes on, he says, it is the knowledge that there can never really be any peace and joy for me until there is peace and joy finally for you too. That's how he defines compassion. In our text this morning, I read it, Luke 5, 12 through 26. We actually have two beautiful pictures of what true biblical compassion looks like. Two pictures that I'm gonna use to form our outline for our time in this passage together. The first, which is found in verses 12 through 16, involves Jesus and a man who had leprosy. If you're taking notes, we're gonna call this first picture, touching the untouchable. If you're taking notes, point one will be touching the untouchable. 
We take for granted the word leprosy, um, but the word leprosy biblically refers to a wide variety of skin ailments, some of them even fatal, especially in these times with the lack of the kind of medicine we enjoy today. Uh, If you were a leper, you had to live in isolation. You had some form of a skin disease called leprosy. You had to live in isolation. And since there was no real cure, the only defense against it was quarantine. According to Leviticus 13, 45 and 46, and I'm gonna go ahead and read it for you. I quote, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out everywhere he goes, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean. As long as he has the disease, he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's a quote. See the focus? He's unclean. He or she are unclean. They are unclean. They're outside the camp. Stay outside the camp. You see, the leprous person was ill with more than just some skin disease. The leprous person was an outcast. He had lost more than just his health. He had lost his family. He had lost his friends. He had lost his home. He had lost his livelihood. And on top of that, he was absolutely dependent upon the charity of those who were not allowed to even associate with him. Maybe they would come by and leave something that the lepers could come and take. The leper was socially unacceptable and ceremonially unclean. The leper was an untouchable. He went nowhere near them. But the leper we meet here, this leper, we'll call him desperate. Luke describes him like we might describe someone who has advanced, vastly spread, uncurable cancer, right? What do we say? Oh, their body's just full of cancer. That's the same idea here. He was full of leprosy. That's how Luke describes him, full of leprosy. It's a way of saying he's beyond hope. So advanced, so bad, full of leprosy. So imagine the shocking sight here in verse 12. He breaks every single social norm and he does the unimaginable. He comes into town, he seeks out Jesus, he falls on his face before Jesus and he begs him and he says, Lord, he acknowledges him as Lord. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. You see, in his desperation, in his overwhelming sense of personal need, he comes to Jesus and just asks, if you will, will you heal me? He believed that Jesus could. He believed that Jesus could heal him if Jesus willed to do so. We can learn from that. He knew that it wasn't up to him. It wasn't dependent on whether he had enough faith or that he'd planted enough faith seeds or done anything on his own. He knew it was solely up to the sovereign will of the son of God. That's shocking. Please get it in your head. This scene is not normal. You think that's shocking? What comes next is even more shocking. More shocking than an untouchable 
strolling into town as he did. Look again at verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him. And he said, I will be clean. I've read that passage so many times I don't get emotional anymore, but it still kind of starts to build up in there. I hope you see just how amazing this is. It's actually impossible to capture the drama of this moment with words. What Jesus did here, what he did is something that nobody ever did. Nobody touched the lepers, except maybe another leper. Nobody. Touching a leper was forbidden. There's no specific commandment in the law of God that says don't touch them. So Jesus isn't a lawbreaker here, but it's common sense, right? You touch them, you're unclean, right? And it was transmissible most by this type of touch. And so you might get it and then you would be cast out and lose everything. So people, particularly teachers like Jesus, didn't touch lepers. So when Jesus did it, I want you for a moment in your imagination Picture you're one of the people who were there seeing him do it. How would you have responded? Okay, I didn't expect any of you to act it out, but what? Repulsion might be the best way. Repulsion. And Jesus didn't care how everyone else acted. He was focused on the man in front of him. So what did he do? He touched him anyway. He touched him and immediately he was healed. Now think about this for a moment. Typically, when something clean touches something unclean, what happens? The clean thing becomes defiled. That's why people didn't touch lepers, right? When the clean thing touches the unclean thing, the clean thing becomes unclean, becomes defiled, but not so with Jesus. Not this time. Rather, things ran in the opposite direction, didn't they? The cleanliness of Jesus heals heals the unclean leper. It's a, it's a total cure is what we're to get here. It's a total cure for him. The man is transformed from head to toe. Likely he was very disfigured, he looked hideous probably, but in the blink of an eye, in a moment, he is transformed, he is cured. And what does Jesus do? Being the perfect law keeper, tells him to go and keep the law. Go show yourself to the priest offer the offering that's required. And I can just imagine the priest when the guy came to them, because this just didn't happen very often. They probably had to get back out the law, right? Get back, well, let's look it up in Leviticus. What do we do when someone's actually clean? I don't remember what the offering was. It would have been neat to see. But here was one who did. And it was Jesus' way of sending a signal, as he'll send a signal to the teachers later. It's his way of sending a signal to the priest. I'm, I'm the great high priest. I'm the one who can cleanse people. I'm the one who by touch can give them my cleanliness. This is a true picture of true compassion. Jesus didn't have to touch the leper to make him clean. He could have just done it with one word, even one thought. But instead, he gives to us a picture of the true compassion that Jesus has, not just for lepers, but for everyone who is apart from him, including us. You know, leprosy, as you've probably heard many times, is also a picture itself. Leprosy is a, a picture of sin and a picture of its effects upon us. 
Because we're sinners, we're separated from fellowship with God. And it leaves us in a state of alienated desperation as well, just crying out, how can I be? Oh, wretched man that I am, how can I be set free, delivered from this? It takes the righteousness of Jesus, right? So, so just as Jesus in his humanity reaches out and touches the leper, making him clean. So what did he do? He reached out to all of us through his incarnation, through his life and through his death on the cross. It was there, there at Calvary, where he, the clean one, the righteous one, took our sin upon himself. And what did he do for us? He imputed his righteousness to us. He didn't become unclean. He bore our sin, exhausted the wrath of God against it. But just as he cleansed this leper, so he cleanses us of our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And through that great act and the gift of saving faith, we're also restored. Those of you who are believers, Christians, followers of Jesus, you've been restored to a right relationship with God and you are in community with him through his body, the church. That's true compassion. Compassion didn't say, oh, poor leper. The compassion of Jesus said, I'm gonna move towards him and I'm gonna act. Now we may not possess the same healing power on demand. We don't possess the same healing power on demand that Jesus did. We don't have the ability to reconcile people to God that Jesus does but we certainly possess the capacity to love and to serve those who the world is quick to call untouchable. If you look at just a survey of church history, you'll find that Christians have been known for being the ones who do just that. The ones who have always been on the front lines feeding the hungry. They're on the front lines clothing the poor and the naked. They're on the front lines nurturing the sick. They're on the front lines welcoming the foreigner. They're on the front lines pursuing the outcasts. That's what Christians have been known for. They've been known by their love. In fact, Jesus said, that's how you will be known. They will know you are Christians by your love. Unfortunately, some, especially the last century, have blurred these acts of compassion with kind of a blanket acceptance of any sinful behavior or lifestyle. They say, well, it's okay for them to be that way or whatever they've done to put themselves in that predicament. No, it doesn't have to be so. It doesn't have to be so. We don't have to just put a blanket over sin. It's actually possible to stand firm on God's word it's possible to confront sin with the truth of the gospel while entering into the suffering of others, to enter into it with action, serving others just as Jesus has served us. It's possible to love and love by telling the truth. This is what the church is to be known for, this compassion of reaching in and reaching out to others to serve them, but also to love them and show them Jesus. This is what we're to be known for. Maybe another way to put it that has been helpful for me for many years, with regard to the gospel, there are no untouchables. What do I mean by that? No one is so far gone that the gospel cannot reach even them. If you say you believe in the power of the gospel, 
you know that there are none so far gone that the gospel cannot reach. If the Lord wills, he will change hearts and grant faith. My prayer this week is that God would help me and help you be known for such compassion. And you know what? He does help us. Actually, he does help us. And he does so next. He does so in a beautiful picture. There's a picture of this very compassion, us stepping in uh, in the following verses, verses 17 through 26. So if you're taking notes, let's call this second picture, carrying others to Jesus. Carrying others to Jesus. We're told in verse 17 that Jesus was teaching before a crowd. And this crowd's a little different and that it includes Pharisees and scribes. And Luke says, from every village of Galilee and Judea, that's a lot, and from Jerusalem. In Mark's gospel and the parallel account of this in chapter two, we learn some more things about this crowd. Uh, Mark points out that it's a very large crowd. Mark tells us that there were so many people packed into this house that there was no more room, not even at the door. The picture we should have in our mind is the crowd is spilling out onto the street. People just stretch necking, right? What's going on in there? What's he saying? Uh, Maybe he should have two services, maybe three, I don't know. (laughs) But in the midst of that crowd spilling out onto the street was one who was also desperate. One who desperately wanted to be brought to Jesus. Whether he didn't get there early enough or he wasn't allowed in because of his condition, we don't know that. But we do know that he was determined. So determined that he and his friends were willing to do anything to get him to Jesus. So they did the inconceivable. Literally translated, as Mark says it, they unroofed the roof for him. That's literal. They unroofed the roof. Roofs in Jesus's day were not like ours. You're probably not surprised by that. The roof would have been flat and it would have been constructed of a mixture of straw and mud that would have felt like brick, right? And then it was overlaid with thick clay tiles. If you don't believe me that the roof was sturdy, Understand it was sturdy enough for five men at least. Mark mentions four, Luke doesn't. But these men to all be on top of it at the same time. So you can only imagine, as sturdy as that is, how difficult it would have been for them to dig, to dig an opening large enough to lower this paralyzed man through. But they did. We're not told how long it took them. I always wonder that, right? How long did it take them to do that? What was the noise like? inside there. You know, somebody, hey, send somebody out there to to see what's going on. I also think like they had to notice, right? Like wouldn't dirt finally start falling through onto the people below, maybe even onto Jesus himself. There's just dirt falling everywhere. You just picture all of this, right? But these men are determined. They knew that Jesus could heal this paralytic and they were willing to go to radical measures for their friends. This is really a beautiful picture. It's not only a wonderful depiction of friendship and selfless service, but it's also a wonderful demonstration of the desperate radical measures we go to when we know there is only one way 
to do something. When we know there's only one way to do it, boy, are we determined. This paralytic man and his, friend, man and his friends knew that Jesus was the only way, but they learned something else. They learned something else. Jesus was more than just the answer for his paralysis. Jesus was more. Think about it. You have here a man who is paralyzed, a man who's going to these extraordinary lengths to be healed by the one whom he knows has the power to heal him. Imagine for a moment what's going through his mind as he was planning, laying there, maybe reaching over if he could and trying to hit the, the bricks there, try to get himself through. What was he thinking? If he's anything like us, he's probably going, if I could just walk, my life would be so much better. If I could walk, I could work. If I could work, I could buy stuff, buy food. If I could walk, I wouldn't have to be so dependent on others all the time. But now the hole's there. The hole is there. We're at the big moment, the apex, right, of our story. And much to the surprise of everyone in this crowded house, you just imagine this paralytic man starts to be lowered right down in front of Jesus, right in front of everyone's eyes. What I love is that neither Mark nor Luke even talks like it bothers Jesus at all. It doesn't seem to bother him at all. Jesus sees beyond the audacity of what's happening and he sees something that no one else in that room could see. Look with me again at verse 20. And when he saw their faith, Jesus saw not the audacity of what they did. He saw their faith. And then what does he say? Your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? What, your sins are forgiven? Did, did we miss something? Did this man come looking for forgiveness of his sins? We know he has faith. I mean, that Jesus commends him for his faith. And apparently then this faith was more than just a faith that Jesus could make him walk again. Apparently it's a, a saving faith for Jesus to say this. It's a, a faith in Jesus, a belief that Jesus was able to heal him of anything and everything. But it's still shocking it's still shocking. We know the whole story. We know that Jesus does uh, heal him of his paralysis. And we know that this sits up the beginning of a showdown we're gonna wrestle with for chapter after chapter after chapter after this, which is why I'm not focusing on it because we'll get to it next week. There are Pharisees here going, what's going on? Who can do this? And Jesus is like, yeah, I can. I can because I'm the Messiah. The son of God, but put yourself back in the, in the story that you put yourself in the crowd experiencing all this. You have this paralytic dropped through the roof. He's, he's obviously seeking to be healed. And Jesus goes, yeah, your sins are forgiven. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? Back to the original narrative, put yourself in their sandals, sitting on their spot on the floor. It teaches us that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Jesus goes right to this man's greatest need, his need to be reconciled to God. To the one who has faith in Jesus, we don't find it weird for Jesus to say that. We think it's beautiful and sweet because it's the sweetest words we can ever hear. That's why we do words of affirmation every week after our prayers of confession, how good it is to be reminded that God says you're forgiven, you're welcomed, you're received 
in Christ. To know that our sins are forgiven, to hear the pardoning words of Jesus is not only powerful, but it gives something to our hearts. It gives life-giving and soul-healing reassurance that we so desperately need. And that's why we carry people to Jesus. That's why we act in compassion. We know that Jesus has the power to heal. We know that Jesus has the power to restore. We know that Jesus has the power to turn people's lives around, but we know first and foremost that he has the power to forgive sins, that he has the amazing grace to forgive people of their sins. We know that he has the power of eternal life for all who believe by faith. We know that our greatest need is our need for Jesus. We know that beyond any earthly need, we need Jesus. In fact, we know even more than those friends and that paralytic knew. So here's a question. Why wouldn't we be quick to carry others to Jesus? Why wouldn't we be so quick? After all, wouldn't that be true compassion? Not just feeling for them, but stepping in and holding out the hope and the truth of the gospel. I think we can all agree that we live in a world, I put in my notes here, often confused. I'm just saying we're very confused. This world is very confused about what true compassion really is. The world often fails to recognize that compassion includes more than recognizing and feeling pity for others' people's suffering. The world often fails and it does fail to understand that true compassion enters into suffering and it acts on behalf of the people. Thank God we've seen true compassion today. We've seen Jesus touch the leper. We've seen the paralytic's friends carry him to Jesus. These are pictures of true biblical compassion. I got thinking a lot about the world and probably some deceived churches, views of compassion. And it led me to think about the movie, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. You wonder what I do all week? That's part <laughs> of what I do. I just admit that up front. You might remember that movie, maybe you don't. Talk to someone, your parents or others if you don't know, but uh, the, the father in that movie is one of my favorite characters. And one of the reasons why is, is he has this belief that Windex can heal anything, right? So if you have a sore muscle or something's wrong with your face, you spray Windex on it, right? Windex cures everything. Just spray Windex on it. It's weird, but that's what he believed. You know, very similarly, many today believe that compassion is nothing more than thoughts and feelings. Compassion is nothing more than social media posts. Compassion is nothing more than screaming in the faces of our opponents. I believe that compassion is nothing more than ballot initiatives and political platforms. And those might be noble and heartening things at times. We often sit back and wonder, why don't they yield the transformative results that people are looking for, that people truly need? You know what it ends up looking like? Spraying Windex what it looks like. Offering solutions, offering words that have no accomplishment for anything. So our call, I think, clearly 
in this passage. I'm not gonna give you bullet points. Here's 10 ways to do that. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. How's the Spirit calling you to be more compassionate? How is the Spirit of God for the glory of the Father and the Son, how is he calling you to reflect Christ's ministry and showing compassion to those who are in it? looks different for all of us. It looks different for all of us. But here's what it does include, and I'll say it by way of conclusion. It is good to be empathetic. It is good to have feelings towards other people's sufferings, but draw near. Don't recoil. Even if you don't know what to say, put an arm around them, pray. Maybe just be quiet and be present. Ask how you can serve. Sometimes you know exactly how you can serve, serve. But do that while pointing them to Jesus. Show them, tell them, testify of the freedom that is found in being set free from our greatest need, right? Being set free from our bondage to sin and death and knowing that there is eternal life with Christ in heaven. Bring them the gospel, carry them to Jesus. Show them Jesus. Love, live, serve as Jesus loved, lived, and served. Put it into practice and help. Help me, help each other. How often do we fail? How often we just fail to ask? Let's be those people for each other who join together on mission to share our lives, share the gospel in true biblical compassion to others. Amen and amen.